John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly, and my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 89 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at individual, the number one pod. I have been saying for weeks now that the Democratic Party was headed over a cliff and was going to try to do their best, at least apparently inadvertently, to reelect Donald Trump against all odds by nominating someone who was very uh, ill prepared to defeat him. And uh, as is often the case, and it's funny because I've referenced this before, a lot of people uh, talk to me and say, well, look, Zig, you're a pessimist. And I always say, actually, I'm both a realist and at times I'm a uh, delusional optimist because what I normally do is I take a look at what is the most likely scenario and then I try to find the silver lining. I try to find the, the scenario within that that provides at least some semblance of hope. And what ends up normally happening is that I'm usually pretty darn close to right but oftentimes I end up being too optimistic. And I think that's pretty much what has occurred here with regard to the democratic process. Because when this all began, as you probably recall, I thought that Joe Biden had the best chance of being the nominee. And therefore he also, by virtue of the fact that he would be the best person to go up against Donald Trump in a general election, the Democrats weren't going to be dumb enough, weren't going to be short-sighted enough, weren't going to be duped 
into destroying him just as Donald Trump wanted. That's what the entire Ukrainian scandal was all about, trying to muddy up, bloody up Joe Biden because Trump knew that Biden would beat him in a general election. I, I didn't, even though I thought that was a threat and that was a concern going into the Democratic caucuses and primaries, I was somewhat confident that that wasn't going to happen, that the numbers for Biden were holding up at least uh, to the at least to a degree where he was still the favorite to win the nomination. But then as soon as the Iowa results came back, I was like, uh-oh, uh, this is big trouble. Big, big trouble. Not just because uh, he finished well behind Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg and even behind Elizabeth Warren, but because the internal polling of the, of the, the exit polling from the Iowa caucus was very, very negative to Biden, specifically on the issue of electability. And if you don't believe that Joe Biden is the most electable option, which he is, at least in theory, although I, I frankly think Amy Klobuchar would be more electable, but I understand why the average voter wouldn't understand that right now. She's not as well known, doesn't have 100% name, name recognition. Obviously, Joe Biden is a far more well-known uh, entity and was Barack Obama's vice president for eight years. So being realistic, that's the guy that if you want to beat Trump, that's who you should go for. Trump signaled that as clearly as he possibly could with the entire Ukrainian drug deal, as John Bolton referred to it. And uh, it was obvious from Iowa and those exit polls that at least in, in Democrats in Iowa, who are not necessarily representative of the nation as a whole, but they're, they have a, an outplaced significance because they're first, they were not buying that Joe Biden was the most electable candidate. And if you're not winning among those to, to whom electability is the most important right off the bat, and then you start losing which he did in Iowa, and then he did in New Hampshire, and then he did again yesterday in Nevada. Once you start losing, even though it doesn't make any logical sense, because a general election is 100% different than a, 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 a primary campaign, but in the minds of the average person, once you start losing, then the idea that you're the most electable becomes even more far-fetched. And because the media, the liberal media especially, has no investment in Joe Biden at all. In fact, they have an anti-investment. No one's going to correct the record. No one is going to explain to liberal voters why Joe Biden is the most electable in a general election and why Bernie Sanders, for instance, might be the least electable in a general election. So this misconception is just going to grow and grow as Bernie wins more and more. And so getting back to this whole issue of optimism versus pessimism and realism, if anything, Bernie Sanders has taken control of this nominating process even more quickly than I feared. I feared after Iowa and certainly after New Hampshire that that's what was going to happen. And I wrote uh, several articles and talked about it on this podcast uh, extensively and why that was incredibly dangerous if your goal is to defeat Donald Trump. I'm sure we'll talk more, much more about that in today's podcast and in podcasts in the future. But the reality is that once this election campaign is pointed in a particular direction, I've used the metaphor of an aircraft carrier before. 
There are many that work. Once that aircraft carrier is pointed in a particular direction, it is nearly impossible to turn around on short notice. People become invested in their choices, and very few people ever change their minds based on new facts anymore. We are living in a, in a realm of emotion, and once you become emotionally invested in somebody or something or in a movement, and, and that movement seems to have momentum, and you are told that the, they are going to be the winners, then it is very, very difficult, if not impossible, to turn that around, especially once momentum creates its own momentum, because everyone wants to be on the bandwagon of a winner, except when it comes to Bernie Sanders and democratically elected officials in Washington. It's weird how there's been no bandwagon effect from them, which I think is very, very telling. I mean, if, if Bernie Sanders was really perceived as the person most likely to beat Donald Trump and help the Democratic Party in November, guess what would be happening? Virtually every Democratic elected official would be endorsing Bernie Sanders. Correct. But they're not. Because they know he's not the best person to beat Donald Trump. Correct. And so this is all very obvious to people who have a clue and who understand the way this works. But the, the percentage of people in that category is shrinking almost on a daily basis. And, the, and those people who are in the category of those who have a clue have incredibly shrinking power, if any power left. In fact, I'm now convinced that the so-called elites or the establishment actually might have an anti-power, if that's an actual thing, because people are so against the establishment, they're so against the elites, they're so against people who actually know what the hell's going on, or at least pretend to. And by the way, the elites and the establishment have been wrong a lot, and they're paying a huge price for it, and they're, they were perceived as being dead wrong in 2016 when Donald Trump won, and therefore, in the minds of the average person, they have no credibility. I get it. But that doesn't mean it's like the weather person. The weather person is wrong occasionally, too. But that doesn't mean you don't check the weather before you go outside in, in the middle of February. You, that's, that would be foolhardy. Most people don't do that because you still believe that the experts have some semblance of insight into what's going on. For some reason in politics, that doesn't seem to have any, any real influence anymore. In fact, as I've already mentioned, it might have an anti influential effect. And that's what we're seeing in the Democratic primary process. So yesterday was the Nevada caucus. And once again, the Democratic Party screwed the pooch when it came to even just getting the damn numbers out. I don't even know if they're still out uh, by 100%. But Bernie Sanders won big. Uh, Joe Biden uh, finished second over Pete Buttigieg. Then it was Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar finished a, a distant fifth or sixth depending on whether she beat Tom Steyer, depending on how you define it. And one of the many problems with these caucuses is there's so many different ways to judge it. There's the popular vote, and then there's the secondary vote, and then there's the amount of county delegates they get, and then there's the actual number of delegates they get to the national convention. And look, that's way, way too complicated for most people. But the reality is the, that Bernie Sanders won, and he won big. And he's now uh, arguably won the first three races, Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. And yes, this is a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of the overall 
number of states, number of delegates that needed to be need to be won in order to clinch the nomination. And yes, I agree that mathematically it is still very, very uncertain, if not very difficult, for even Bernie Sanders to get a majority of the delegates at the national convention, which is what you technically need to win the nomination. I get all that. And there are a lot of people still clinging to that. Oh, we're just three races in. Yeah, that is a very, very naive way of looking at this. And there are a number of reasons why. It's not just the aircraft carrier analogy or metaphor that I have used, uh, although that's part of it. A large part of it is also the calendar. We have the South Carolina primary coming up on Saturday, which is the really last hope for Joe Biden. Joe Biden has been putting all of his eggs in South Carolina. That's where there's a very significant black vote. But the black vote, in my view, has been fractured now. Uh, Tom Steyer has been spending a boatload of money in South Carolina, uh, fooling uh, people there into thinking that he's actually a legitimate candidate. Uh, He spent a boatload of money in Nevada. It did him no good. There's an interesting phenomenon, and I think this is relevant to the Michael Bloomberg situation, that people who have no real ground game and no real history and are somewhat new to the process, and Tom Steyer clearly is that kind of person, when they spend a ton of money on campaign commercials on television, where it's just literally an air campaign, no ground campaign, what happens is they do very well in state polling, as Steyer did in Nevada and Steyer's doing in South Carolina. They show up in the polls because what happens with a poll? A scientific poll is where people are calling you and saying, okay, what's your preference? And that is a passive act by the person who is being polled. You're just sitting at home, the phone rings, you pick it up, and you're saying, "Uh, yeah, yeah, I like Tom Steyer. I just saw a commercial as I was watching uh, Dateline. or A passive act by the voter. But then what happens is those people don't actually show up because they're not deeply invested in their candidate. It's a very mild preference. And when you actually have to show up to the polls, invariably the support for that does not match what it was in the telephone scientific polls. And the same thing is likely to happen to Steyer in South Carolina, but that still harms Joe Biden, potentially, It takes away oxygen. It takes away the perception of momentum. For instance, if there was no Tom Steyer in South Carolina, would all of those votes be calculated for Joe Biden? Would he be leading by a larger margin in the polls leading up? Would that create the perception that he's about to have a big victory that will be the foundation for this miraculous comeback? Well, that's not going to happen. Now, there is the argument that, okay, maybe that allows Biden to overperform the polls in South Carolina. But look, I don't know what's going to happen in South Carolina. I would like to believe that Joe Biden is going to win in South Carolina, but I do not believe it's going to be by a large margin. If he does win, it'll be by the skin of his teeth. Uh, If he loses, it's completely over because now he has no argument. I mean, he's been saying for months uh, that uh, this is where he has to win. And if you don't win against a, a socialist uh, from Vermont, uh, I'm sorry, you have no, you have no argument. It's, it's over at that point. Uh, but I, I still believe he'll probably win South Carolina. I don't know this for sure. We'll know more in, in the next few days with more polling and a couple of 
uh, more town halls and a debate and all that. But here's the thing. Let's just presume Joe Biden wins South Carolina. And it's not by a huge margin that really changes the world. And Bernie Sanders finishes second, which is the most likely scenario at this point. Should that occur, how does that change the trajectory? How does that move the aircraft carrier in any significant way when three days after that you have massive amounts of delegates being decided on the first version of Super Tuesday, including here in California? where Bernie Sanders, if the polls hold true, and again, I ask you, what would change the dynamic? What would change the trajectory? We've already had an event with regard to the intelligence agencies saying Bernie Sanders' campaign, and it had absolutely no impact on Nevada whatsoever. Correct. I mean, really? Really? You cannot be serious. I'll get more into that in a moment. But if that story isn't going to change things dramatically, what would, in the next nine days, a South Carolina victory on a weekend by a small margin is not a massive needle mover? People have already decided or are going to be deciding in the next few days. They're not going to all of a sudden change their minds without some massive black swan event. And as I already mentioned, if the Russian intelligence story is not a black swan event, I don't know what is. So I'm, I'm willing to be the optimist. I'm willing to say, you know what, maybe Biden, uh, you know, they, they rally the, 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 the troops, circle the wagons, and the old people get out for one last hurrah for Joe Biden in South Carolina. Even if that happens, I don't see how it dramatically changes anything. It might delay the inevitable. I mean, and look, this is going to go on for a long time, but it's going to be a grind. Uh, and it's going to be a grind that Bernie Sanders is far more well-suited to win than anybody else, because we're now living in a world where you got to have a cult. you got to have a cult. A cult is now the most important element for winning the presidency, and it will be forever if Bernie Sanders is the nominee. Because if you have two cult leaders, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, as your nominees, that's the way it's going to be, at least for the rest of my life. Unless there are dramatic changes to the primary process on both sides of the political equation. Because that's the way people are going to look at this. Oh, well, you can't win without a cult. It used to be you appeal to the middle. Now you appeal to the extreme fringes. And you do so in a cult-like fashion. And because you, if, when you have a cult, a couple of things happen. Number one, they show up. And they show up in numbers that are large enough to win in crowded fields. And that's what uh, Sanders is doing, exactly the same thing that Trump did in 2016. You can win a crowded field with 25, 30, 35% of the vote of a cult-like movement. And then the other thing that happens is once you get that momentum, like Trump did in 2016, once you get that momentum, then everyone is afraid to kill you off. One, it becomes very difficult to kill you off. And two, no one wants to do it. They're afraid to do it. Because if you kill off the candidate with a cult, guess what happens? Once they're invested in your victory, 
they are pissed off to an epic degree, and they will not show up in November. That's what really was the reason why Trump had no chance of losing in 2016 once he took control, because the Republican Party realized, and the establishment did this very quickly, and that's why there was no fight at all. I mean, they, this was this was a coup without really any shots fired, uh, and the Repub because the Republican establishment realized, holy living crap. If we kill off Trump now, we're going to lose his 30% of our party. And, you know, who knows? He might even run as a third party or whatever. But regardless, we can't beat Hillary Clinton if those people are so pissed off they're not going to vote. Well, it's the same thing that's going to happen here with Sanders. You cannot take this away from – you could take it away from Sanders – uh, but if you did, it would be a bloody civil war. I mean, there, there's a massive difference between there being a mechanism to stop Bernie Sanders, which there is. I get it. A lot of people say, but John, look at the math. If he doesn't get a majority of the delegates, he can be uh, stopped by the superdelegates and the convention vote. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's all fine and good. On paper, that uh, is, is certainly a plausible scenario. But let's talk about the real world. In the real world, no one's going to do that because they would be terrified of the implications. And there's no leader in the party to organize that. I made a massive miscalculation when I thought Bernie Sanders was a long shot to win the Democratic nomination. I miscalculated, one, that his heart attack would have no impact. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, thought, I really did think that 78-year-olds, <laughs> when you have a heart attack... <laughs> Regardless of the fact that you're a socialist from Vermont, I really honestly thought that that would give some people pause. I really honestly thought that would kill his momentum. I didn't think he would come back as long as he has. It doesn't appear as if there's been any impact to that. But I really did believe that uh, when you're 78 years old and you suffer a heart attack, that that pretty much puts you out of the running. That was my first miscalculation because that didn't turn out to be true. The second miscalculation was I thought that Biden would be able to hold a level of support that would keep Sanders from taking control. This is the metaphor that I've used with regard to pitching the seventh game of the World Series. When you're expecting Biden to come out and throw in the 80s and he turns out he's throwing in the 70s, you got to get him the hell out of there because that's not going to cut it. In the seventh game of the World Series, you, you, there's no choice. You must win. And unfortunately, Biden, because of South Carolina and name recognition and everything else, he didn't see the handwriting on the wall. And uh, I, I believe, I still believe, he, should, he and Warren should have gotten out immediately, giving Amy Klobuchar a chance. That didn't happen. Klobuchar is now done. It's over for her, sadly, uh, because I do believe that she would have been the best candidate uh, based upon the current factual record to go up against Donald Trump, but that's not going to happen. So now it's basically Biden, maybe Bloomberg, or bust, which is Bernie Sanders. It's going to be Bernie Sanders in, in all likelihood because there's no plausible other scenario. There, there isn't, again, unless something really dramatic happens in the next nine days before Super Tuesday. And let me give you another example of why this convention scenario is not really that plausible, right? 
one of the reasons that Elizabeth Warren did not drop out, and there are probably many, I mean, she's such an egomaniac, she probably thinks that she has a chance of actually winning. But the reality is, I think she's running for Sanders VP right now. That's the most logical scenario. Because if you're Elizabeth Warren, I think you got to realize you can't win the nomination with Bernie Sanders being the person you're up against. Because ideologically, they're too aligned. And there's really no reason for the Sanders voter to go up to go to Warren now. In fact, there's more of an incentive for the Warren voter to go to Bernie because he's the one that's winning. So it's hard to imagine. I mean, it would be interesting to see as if it ever did get Warren Sanders head to head. You could argue that uh, some of the moderates might hold their nose and and vote for Warren, and she could theoretically maybe get over 50% against Bernie, but I doubt that. But that's also not realistic, because Michael Bloomberg's not going anywhere. He's got all the money in the world, and Joe Biden certainly ain't going to go anywhere, at least until Super Tuesday, unless South Carolina has a complete bust. But again, there's only three days between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. So that Warren Sanders scenario, I think, is unlikely. The most likely scenario here is Elizabeth Warren is trying to be Bernie Sanders' vice presidential nominee. And that gets me to the convention scenario. So let's say that, you know, none of these major candidates drop out, at least not for a very long period of time, because they want to get delegates. And they get the delegates to go to the convention. I don't know how many delegates Warren's going to get, but he's going to get, she's going to get a, a significant amount. And she might get enough to be able to put Bernie over the top. Well, there is zero chance, if she has enough delegates to put Bernie over the top, that she's going to decide to block. Uh, she had the uh, uh, belief that she was going to end up being the compromise pick. Again, egos do strange things to people's brains. But that, I think, is a far less likely scenario uh, than, than Warren simply taking her chips and saying, okay, Bernie, uh, here's my delegates and uh, I will be your vice presidential nominee. And, and that would make sense from both sides. And one of the many problems with a Sanders nomination is who do you make his vice presidential nominee, which would be an incredibly important decision because, again, he's 78 years old and just had a heart attack. So who could that be person be? And I don't see anybody who fits well. I mean, Warren fits okay ideologically, but, and the fact that she's a female, and so that's probably why she would end up getting the nod, especially under the circumstances I just outlined. But geographically, that's suicide. So you're going to put Bernie Sanders with Elizabeth Warren, two ultra, ultra lefties, both from the extreme Northeast? Good luck with that. Good luck. I mean, that is like the dream scenario for Donald Trump. Correct. I, I mean, that I mean, right off the bat, just from a geographical standpoint and the ideological perspective, you take Arizona off the map. You probably take North Carolina off the map. Uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine Florida uh, going for that. I mean, and those are major, major states that if you're trying to make inroads in what Trump did in 2016, that's one of your those are some of your very few targets. Now, uh, I don't think that Pennsylvania would go for that. Michigan might, Wisconsin, I doubt it. I mean, but you got to win all three of those. You got to win all three. So 
anyway, there, there's a lot of different things going on here. But getting back to why Sanders is the prohibitive favorite now to win the nomination, part of it is because Warren is going to be there to put him over the top. And that's why she's sticking in the race. And I also go back to one other miscalculation I made, and that is relevant to this whole issue of the convention and what might happen there and why it is that Bernie is very difficult to stop now. The third miscalculation I made after the heart attack and Biden's level uh, uh, of support in the early stages is I honestly thought that Barack Obama would step in if it got to this point and say, knock it off. Knock it off. I mean, it's really, it's astonishing to me. It is, uh, you know, somebody who did a, a movie, a major documentary film in 2009 called Media Malpractice, how Obama got elected. I am no fan of Obama. I, he's, I, I think much more highly of him now than I did back then, partially because he wasn't as bad a president as I expected, and partially because my standards and expectations have gone into the toilet thanks to the Trump uh, presidency. But it is, it is really disappointing to me that Barack Obama would not have the balls to step in and say, guys, uh, let's not do this. And there's so many ways that he could do it uh, that would really be in his best interest. I mean, my gosh, if only from an ego standpoint. Can you imagine if this week Barack Obama announced that he was going to give a speech in which he was going to address uh, the state of the Democratic primary campaign? My God. I mean, my God, the media coverage of that would be like the Super Bowl. It would be the Super Bowl. And, uh, you know, Obama could get up there and say, look, um, you know, we need to beat the Donald Trump. And, you know, my, my man Joe Biden is a, is a good guy, and I think he could get the job done. And, we, you know, America would be better off if he won. We also have a couple of female candidates in there just to protect himself, you know, that I think could also get the job done. And then he could say, and then there are some other candidates that cannot get the job done. And he wouldn't even have to necessarily name them. The media would do the job for him. They would do the job for him. By omission, he could destroy, not he wouldn't destroy, but he could in, greatly enhance the chances of stopping Bernie Sanders by simply making it very clear that he does not believe that Sanders is the right person, that he would uh, jeopardize the country into having a second Donald Trump term, that he might uh, harm the Democratic Party down ballot, which a lot of Democrats are now becoming concerned about. How it is that Obama's ego alone isn't having him do that is a complete mystery to me. I've spoken to people uh, within the Democratic establishment who are uh, about as baffled as I am that it appears as if Barack Obama is going to take a pass on this. It is amazing to me that he has never really pushed back on the Michael Bloomberg TV commercial, which is running uh, on a loop almost on some channels, where it appears as if Barack Obama endorsed Michael Bloomberg, which he did not. Uh, do and it, those are all very very old uh, statements that have nothing to do with a political endorsement, and I think it has hurt Joe Biden. The Biden campaign was incredibly slow to respond to that because I don't think they know fully what they're doing, and they have a candidate who's a hundred years old. Uh, but I mean, th if you're ever going to do this, Barack Obama, now is the time. I mean, it is now or never. 
It is now or never. But And let me just, and I'm going to get into this on Wednesday. We're scheduled to be joined by David Schuster, who is a, a former network anchor person. I think he's I think he's worked for every single news network that there is, literally. I think he holds a record. Uh, and he, I don't know if you would, he would call himself a Bernie Sanders supporter, but he is a a believer that Sanders will both win the nomination and could beat Trump. And I am not, I'm not going to get into the details as to why now, because we've got too many other things to talk about, but I am not a thousand percent convinced that Sanders would lose to Trump. I'm not. I, I think that, I think there's a chance that he could win. And I'll explain probably on Wednesday when I talk to David, I'm not as convinced as he is, I still believe that Trump would be a heavy favorite in that race, but there is a scenario uh, where Sanders could win, and 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 frankly, I am really conflicted about which would be the worst uh, situation for the country and for the world. I really don't know. I've already gotten in some arguments uh, uh, off air, if you will, uh, you know, direct messages with some some never prominent never Trumpers uh, about. Uh, who would be the better or worse choice in a Sanders-Trump matchup? And right now, I'm leaning towards Trump would be the better, at least or the least bad option, uh, if only because Bernie Sanders could be there for eight years. And I realize he's old, but you have to at least take that into consideration here. And that might be the deciding factor for me if we ever get to that point. But as far as uh, where we are, because Obama is seemingly unwilling to step in, and because I, I find it very hard to believe that anything is going to change the, the trajectory of the race in the next nine days, then Bernie Sanders is going to at least go into the convention with the most delegates. And once that's the case, it is almost impossible, especially without an organized leadership uh, and without an alternative candidate with that it would excite people to take that away from him. And yesterday, during the coverage of the Nevada caucuses, uh, there were a couple of Democratic uh, commentators, liberal commentators on MSNBC, who clearly understood that. I mean, James Carville, Bill Clinton's old political guru, has been the most outspoken, uh, saying that uh, this, is, this is basically doomsday for Democrats and that Vladimir Putin is cheering the results because Putin is is promoting Sanders' campaign because, in his belief, uh, he knows that Sanders would be the best candidate to go up against Trump, something that Trump is clearly making uh, obvious is also his belief, and, uh, and that this would be a mistake for Democrats to go and do Vladimir Putin's bidding. Also on MSNBC, Chris Matthews, who's been a longtime commentator on MSNBC, a guy who I actually know in a weird, bizarre way, and I've referenced on this podcast and my other podcast, The World According to Zig, many times that there's this very strange phenomenon that I have, the, I have weird connections to a lot of people that we talk about on these podcasts. My connection to Chris Matthews is among the weirdest. Uh, Chris Matthews grew up in the Somerton section of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is where my mother's family is from. In fact, you know, essentially my mother's family owned most of Somerton at one point. And incredibly long story short, my mother owned a donkey named Moses. I'm, I'm, this is a great story. <laughs> it probably deserves more time than I'm going to be able to give it. Uh, a donkey named Moses who um, became so famous in that section of Philadelphia for a number of reasons. 
that uh, it got written about in the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper. It lived for, and it was never known for, for exactly how long Moses lived, but it lived for like over 40 years. Uh, and uh, it became a local legend. And it was such a local legend for various reasons that my grandfather wanted to preserve the donkey Moses. And I'm going to get to Chris Matthews here in a second, I promise. <laughs> and so he wanted to have a taxidermist ready to go for when Moses finally died to save Moses' head so he could mount him in his den. Literally a pain in the ass. Uh, even though to the community, Moses was like this beloved local legend. Anyway, uh, so when Moses finally passes, the taxidermist uh, assistant who was there on, on duty that night chokes and doesn't want to cut Moses' head off because he had fed Moses as a kid like every other kid in the neighborhood had. So legend has it, and I believe this to be true, that my grandfather said, okay, draw the lines for me. I'll cut Moses' head off. So my grandfather cuts Moses' head off, and, uh, and he gets preserved in a very dramatic fashion in my grandfather's den. Well, this gets to Chris Matthews. So about, my God, it's incredible that it's almost like 18, 19 years ago, Chris Matthews comes back to Somerton to do a speaking engagement, uh, at, literally uh, on the plot of land where Moses uh, used to live and which used to be owned by my mother's family, and uh, Chris Matthews hears about Moses being mounted. And so I uh, somehow get uh, designated to take Chris Matthews to my grandfather's house to, uh, <laughs> to take a look at Moses, <laughs> which he remembered quite fondly from his youth. And he got a big kick out of the fact that Moses was hung uh, in, in effigy, I guess you'd call it, or he, he was mounted uh, in my grandfather's den. And I spent quite a bit of time with him. And, you know, I've, I've always thought that Matthews is a bit weird. And getting to know him very slightly, spending an afternoon with him, it, it didn't change my mind. But Matthews does have, at times, a pretty decent political gut because he's not as liberal as most of those commentators you see on television. And yesterday, he got in trouble because he used an analogy for what's happening in the Democratic Party that people wrongly took as somehow... Uh, connecting Nazism to Bernie Sanders uh, and the potential first Jewish president. And that's, of course, not at all what he... Here he was talking about a book that he's been reading, an analogy he's making to basically Democrats giving up and allowing Sanders to, to march, uh, much like the Nazis did through France in World War II, uh, to apparent victory. And uh, essentially, here's Chris Matthews, uh, who, again, has this weird family connection to me from many years ago and to my mother's family, declaring that the Democratic primary race is essentially over. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940, and the general, Renault calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Churchill said, how can it be? you got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. So I had that suppressed feeling. I can't be as wild as Carville, but he is damn smart. And I think he's damn right on this one. So he's referencing uh, James Carville saying that, uh, that Bernie is going to be the nominee and that this is bad for the cause of beating Trump and it's good for Vladimir Putin. And Chris Matthews agrees. And there's, you know, fire Chris Matthews has been trending on Twitter for like the last 20 hours. 
which is just absurd. I mean, completely absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, again, he's not making any sort of connection between uh, Nazism uh, and Bernie Sanders. He's using the analogy of the French giving up uh, very quickly and in in a way that was a surprise and that there, there, there was at least the expectation of a big battle and it never happened, which is incredibly similar to what occurred with the Republican Party in 2016. And I have written a column, a pretty entertaining and I think insightful column, which I put out yesterday on Mediate, which you can find at our uh, Twitter feed, which is at individual one pod, that's individual number one pod, making a very detailed and somewhat humorous comparison between the Sanders campaign of 2020 and the Trump campaign of 2016 at least with regard to the primaries and winning the nomination. And the similarities are striking. The casting is almost exactly the same. The casting, I I go through in the column about how uh, Elizabeth Warren is playing the role of Ted Cruz and uh, Pete Buttigieg is like Marco Rubio and Amy Klobuchar is like John Kasich. And obviously Sanders is like Trump and the media is reprising their role as the enabling media. And it sure looks like Putin is playing the same role he did in 2016, now being in favor of both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. And uh, and I think it's it's really important to take a look at this uh, one again, because it's somewhat entertaining and it's a, a perspective you're not going to read elsewhere. But it explains why Matthews is right. The most shocking thing to me about what happened or didn't happen in 2016 was that there was never a fight, that this was just allowed to happen. No one ever died on any hill. And even those who pretended to die all scurried right back into Trump's cult. Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, uh, Rand Paul, Lindsey Graham. Well, the same thing is very likely to happen with Bernie Sanders. And uh, it, it is it is depressing. It is astonishing. But, you know, those who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it. And uh, it certainly looks like we're repeating history when it comes to this primary election. And while it's not a done deal yet, I mean, there's and then there probably still will be twists and turns going forward and. And there, and, and you know, there's even a scenario which I'll get to uh, after our break, uh, where uh, you know you could theoretically still stop uh, Bernie Sanders. And, and so I'm always in favor of trying everything. You know, go down guns a blazing. You know, this is too important to just let happen. It's just a scenario that I find to be almost implausible at this point. But I will get to it. But before that, I do want to at least mention. Something that happened with regard to Donald Trump this week that we referenced in the last podcast, that it is just amazing to me that somehow, some way, this is already a forgotten story. And it is a perfect example of the desensitization that has occurred with regard to the insanity of the Trump administration. And that is in relationship to this Roger Stone sentencing. So... You probably already know about the complete crap show that was the lead up to the Roger Stone sentencing and how four prosecutors ended up resigning over Trump's attempt to exert influence and the DOJ changing its recommendations for Roger Stone's sentencing. And to be clear, Roger Stone was essentially 
Donald Trump's original campaign manager. He got convicted of very serious offenses, including perjury and obstruction of justice, all related to helping to cover up the role uh, that uh, the Trump campaign may have played, and then, for lack of a better term, uh, colluding with Russia. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Yeah, but that's essentially what happened here. Now, it was technically with WikiLeaks, but most people believe that WikiLeaks was effectively a synonym for the Russian government in this situation. Anyway, so Stone ends up getting sentenced uh, for a little over three years, which seemed to be within the realm of the the proper sentence based upon the guidelines and the convictions and precedent. And most people seem to think that the judge did a good job. The judge made it very clear that the reason why Stone was convicted was that he was covering up for the president of the United States. And, uh, and this obviously irritated the hell out of Donald Trump. And it has been very obvious to almost everybody, in fact, so obvious that maybe it won't actually happen, but this, in this case, I think it will, that Trump is setting the predicate for a pardon of Roger Stone. He's pardoning other people who uh, are in the same kind of realm of corruption, all of which are high-profile people, uh, some of whom are connected to him, no one as connected as Roger Stone, but it is very obvious that Trump is going to pardon Roger Stone, probably right after the election, regardless of whether or not he wins or loses. So Stone, who is still not in prison, pending uh, an appeal of his attempt to try to get a new trial, which is going to take at least a month, based upon what I've heard. And Trump, who, you know, he's dumb in a lot of ways. But boy, he can be he's smart about manipulating his his cult. And he knows what his state-run media will buy. So he publicly went out. And this is just so bizarre to me and so astonishing. And the fact that this did not become a major story is just stupefying. But he went out and not only tried to undercut the sentence against Roger Stone, saying it was way too much, he tried to undercut the charges for which he was convicted by going after the jury foreman in the case. And he just didn't do it in an offhanded comment or a tweet he did it in a public televised speech for multiple minutes trashing this person making stuff up about them i mean there's there is no other president of the united states that would even have considered doing something like this publicly this this is a clear cut obstruction of justice here you are attacking an American citizen who did their duty and by all accounts did a very fair job of being the jury foreman in this in this case. And because apparently this person was was not a Trump supporter or may have said something that was in an indication that they were not a Trump supporter, that somehow this invalidates the entire trial. And, and warrants her being publicly trashed by the President of the United States in a, in a situation where her identity is going to become known and therefore she's going to be uh, vulnerable to all sorts of kinds of threats, not, not to mention what kind of message this sends to anybody else who might stand up. We've already seen it 
with the Vinmans and with Mitt Romney uh, and Sondland uh, uh, and and now the the head of the, the of intelligence agencies, Joe McGuire. I mean, anybody who stands up against this president, the whistleblower, they get attacked not just a little bit, but viciously, completely inappropriately. And so Stone is probably only going to be in prison for a few months once he finally goes there, because this appeal is crap. It has no real chance, but the state-run media will carry Trump's water uh, for him on this because he's a cult leader, and they're the state-run media. That's what they do. And, of course, Colt 45 will lap it all up. And they will now believe that somehow Roger Stone was railroaded by the deep state. That's what they believe. It's just flat-out ridiculous. It's insane. But that's what they will believe. And so when he pardons him in a few months after the election is over, his cult will cheer, especially if he's already won the election, which is becoming increasingly likely because of the Bernie Sanders situation. And and talk about desensitization. I mean, this week it was revealed that Russia is meddling again, this time on behalf of Donald Trump and on behalf of Bernie Sanders. What? You cannot be serious. I mean, so, I mean this, is, this is all happening again, but no one cares. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. That's the most amazing thing. No one seems to care. I, I really believe that if we had known this in 2016, people would have cared because it would have been so shocking, so new. I really believe that it probably would have uh, caused Trump to lose the election if we had known anything close to what was the reality at that time with regard to Russian influence on behalf of Trump. I, I, I really do believe that. But now Trump has done such a good job of desensitizing us and also creating this narrative that you can't believe anything because it's fake news. The media is not to be trusted. So this was in the Washington Post or the New York Times. It doesn't count. And if by chance someone outside the New York Times or the Washington Post actually says something publicly, well, then it's all part of a deep state conspiracy against me. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. It's all either fake news or deep state or some combination of the bo- of the two of those things. And therefore, it has zero impact on my supporters, especially now when the alternative is likely going to be Bernie Sanders. And so now anybody who is remotely right of center, unless you're a professional anti-Trump person and you have your job on the line, which is like eight people, uh, and I'm not in that category, uh, you know, unless you're, so anybody right of center is going to say, oh, you know what, I'll deal with it. I, I don't want Sanders, anything but Sanders. And so so now uh, his ability to keep the cold in line is going to be even more greatly enhanced because of the looming uh, nomination of Bernie Sanders. And so, you know, we have, and then not only do we have this this revelation that Russia is once again meddling, this time on behalf of Trump and Sanders, but then just by coincidence, the head of the intelligence agencies, Joe McGuire, gets relieved of his duties because apparently Trump was so pissed off that McGuire had the gall to tell him that Russia was meddling on his behalf again. I mean, really? Really? You cannot be serious! And then you have Naval Admiral William McRaven, the guy who, 
who punched uh, the Bin Laden raid, running an op-ed that directly says about McGuire's dismissal that Americans should be frightened. Americans should be frightened. And no one cares. No one seems to care. Correct. I mean, that that's what is amazing. And I've always felt that that was the most dangerous part of the Trump presidency, desensitizing us to things that should cause massive amounts of outrage and which are no longer even stories that make it to the next day. For, I mean, the, the, the news cycle is like 15 minutes now. I, I will bet you that not... 15% of the American public even knows that Donald Trump publicly attacked the juror in the Roger Stone case without any facts, making crap up, basically defamed her simply because he's trying to set up a, a pardon for his buddy. I, I bet most, almost, uh, I, I don't know what the percentage is, it's way more than 50% of Americans have no idea. And, the, and maybe even scarier than that is a lot of Americans wouldn't give a crap even if they did know. That's what's really sad. Correct. All right. Now, when we come back uh, in just a moment, I am going to give you that scenario where theoretically Sanders could be stopped and a few other closing comments. But first, here's an important interview I did with Tom Bauer, the founder of our sponsor, Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John. Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium clinical-grade full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, capsules, topical lotions and salves, and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan. Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity. But for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important? CBD is short for cannabidiol. It's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or the element, basically, that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of the, all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness. Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana, and why your product is not the latter. Great, John. It's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are, are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally and descheduled all the non-THC cannabinoids. So, Essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know. You know, can, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal. 
Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products. But tell us, uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical products? Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products per the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just You don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at MU Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian. You know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well. And that website is? It's www.imbuecbd.com. That's www.imbuecbd.com. Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a news story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like backing away a little bit from CBD. What was your interpretation of what the FDA did and and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good question as well, John. And I think first and foremost is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from, you know, basically, you know, drugs that shouldn't be there, that are doing what they're supposed to do, that can cause harm, and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. In in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and and the way that, uh, you know, CBD, which is basically a kind of a a brand new uh, thing for FDA, they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Imbue Botanicals. That's something that, that is, again, is, is goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your, your veterinarian to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. Tell us, tell us why you bring more value. We are more expensive than some folks, and Certainly not more expensive than others, but uh, but we're we are a higher price product, and the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness, and you know what our folks tell us, and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to, or the customers that use our product, or patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're going to spend the money, they want something that works, and that's what our products do. So, Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products or learn more about them, where should they go? Go to our website. It's www.imbuecbd. That's www.imbuecbd.com, imbuecbd.com. 
Tom, thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship. John, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it. So how would Sanders theoretically be stopped at this point? There is at least a a semblance of a path, and I do not believe that this is at all realistic for reasons that I've already addressed in this podcast. But in a dream world, a fantasy world, uh, here's what would happen. Barack Obama would get all the non-Sanders candidates in a room, and uh, he would say, um, Amy Klobuchar, you're great, you're awesome, but it's just not happening. Uh, You need to get out of the race. Uh, and uh, along with Amy, uh, Pete Buttigieg, look, you're unemployed, and uh, you got a great future, I'm sure. I, I like you, but you're going to also get out of the race along <clears throat> with Amy Klobuchar. Uh, <clears throat> Tom Steyer, I don't even know if you want to have him in the meeting, but he's also got to get out. And in fact, uh, everyone's going to get out except uh, for Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Mike Bloomberg. And uh, And so what's going to happen next is that uh, my boy Joe, no one is going to attack Joe, all right? Uh, Elizabeth, uh, you are not to attack Joe Biden at all. Same with you, Mike Bloomberg. Uh, You guys can go after Bernie all you want, but you're not to go after Joe. Now, Elizabeth, in uh, exchange for this, if this works, you're going to be Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee. Uh, and so, you know, I'm not, that's not maybe not the best ticket, but uh, that's the best we got. That's the only shot we have to make this work because we need you to placate the Sanders people, or at least some of them, uh, if this gambit works. Now, Mike Bloomberg, uh, here's your role. You are to use all your money right now not to go after Donald Trump, but to go after Bernie Sanders and to make it very clear to everyone how Sanders would lose to Trump. And so that's your job. You are on a kamikaze mission to take out Bernie Sanders. Uh, I don't care how much money you spend, whatever you want. And in exchange, you'll get whatever cabinet position you want should this work out. So this is how it's all going to go down. All right? Everyone on board. No one will have the guts to tell uh, Obama no. Uh, uh, all right, uh, break. Uh, let, let's do this. Uh, and I don't see that happening. There's no indication that Obama has the wherewithal or the ability to do that. But under that scenario, <clears throat> if you had a, a, an agreement between uh, Bloomberg, Warren, and Biden, and everyone else dropped out, I think you could deny Sanders the nomination. I really do believe that. Again, I see no indication that any of that's going to happen. And the more likely scenario is that it's going to be Bernie Sanders. It's just a matter of how long it'll take and how bloody it will be. And on Wednesday, we will be talking more about what that would actually mean uh, with our scheduled guest, David Schuster. So join us for that. Right now, uh, I'm going to still be delusionally optimistic, <laughs> although it's going to sound rather pessimistic. And I'm going to say that the chances of Donald Trump being re- reelected are, in fact, at an all-time high for this podcast, but are still uh, at a somewhat reasonable 75% because there's still some things that need to be shaken out before I can determine that it's uh, anything close to 100% as some people, even some Democrats, are already saying. So with that, uh, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual1Pod. That's at Individual1Pod. Until Wednesday, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.